Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, which is page 626 in our church Bibles. If that would be some help to you, page 626. As many of you know, we've been working through Daniel verse by verse some now four, maybe five weeks ago. And the reason why we're here this morning, beginning in verse 29, is because that's where we should be. So I think we're going to be able to finish out the chapter this morning, Lord willing. It's good to see you. Happy that you're here. Okay. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and... God gave Daniel the meaning of the dream, and here we are, verse 29, to discover what what all that is, why it matters. As you were lying there, verse 29, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than any other living men. But so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing flower in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms And bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, 
and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an order that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire providence of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning, and may God be pleased to grant us understanding of it. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to sing to you, you're a good, good father, because you are a good, good father. And at this moment, we desperately need your help, and we pray that you would give to us an unusual receptivity to your word so that I can speak it and others can hear it and we would all believe it. Then please grant to us an eternal perspective on life so that we will believe deep in our hearts that in comparison to what is to come, this life is a vapor and a mist. For Jesus' sake, Father, please hear our prayer. Amen. Amen. So here in Daniel chapter 2, we discover that the sovereign control of God encompasses the dream patterns of a pagan king. I want you to hear that. The sovereign control of God encompasses the dream pattern of a pagan king. This is how much control God has over the universe and God has over everyone and everything. Yes, God is a big picture God, but he's also a micro manager of his world so that all his purposes can be accomplished. So this means when we read our newspapers, when we listen to the news reports, we look at elections and even in the daily routines that are common in our common life. Our common life for ourselves, our sons, our daughters, our parents, grandparents, and so on. We need to remember this. And of course, that's what the exiles reading this letter needed to know. The Babylonian forces had swept in and took away everything they knew about true worship, about security, about freedom. Anything which had to do with their way of life is now gone. King Nebuchadnezzar takes away their brightest and their best and ships them to the capital city. He takes away the vessels which were representative of the power and the presence and the holiness of God, and he brings them into the stronghold of the Babylonian gods. Consequently, to all but the eyes of faith, Judah's God, he got it handed to him. And the Babylonian gods and this Babylonian pagan king, they appear in complete control. But you know, there was another event which to all but the eyes of faith looks kind of similar Because you had a Galilean carpenter who went around doing good, healing the sick. He said he was God. He claimed it. And he said that he was going to die for humanity's sin. And now in a kangaroo court, he's being pushed. He's being shoved. He's being struck. He's being spat on by mere men. And then he'll hang naked on a Roman cross. Defeated. Dead. His little group of followers. Gone. 
Jesus, defeated by Rome and by the Jewish religious elite. But what do we know? We know that Jesus was never more powerful and he was never more in control than when he surrendered to death on the cross. So you have the king of kings dying in humility, in submission, in service, and in compassion for the sins of his people. That's our king. And this is the picture we should have in our head. The king on the cross is greater than any king on their throne. And typically, the path God uses most is weakness and loss is actually power and gain. So when God's people begin to read this book in their exile, and remember, they are exiled because they're being punished by God. They've been very disobedient for a long, long time, and now they're making the discovery that God is actually in control of the kingdoms of the world. God sets them up, he brings them down, and that God wills to save the world. That's what's so important here. God is going to try to save and will save this pagan king by the time we get to chapter 4. Now, God's people should have already known this. They should have known that God was sovereign, and they should have known that God cares and wills to save people. But in their disobedience, they couldn't see this. Now, mind you, they were disobedient, and they were still doing their normal religious routines. They were disobedient, but their lives were turning upon themselves. They were disobedient, and and at the time before their exile, they were living the high life, and they were thinking that God was pleased with their selfishness and their apathy, but they were simply being fattened up for the day of slaughter. And their disobedience blinded them to the true nature and to the true will of God. And loved ones, that will always happen in every generation. That's Romans 1.18. We suppress the truth by our wickedness. We smother it. And so then what looks to them like a defeat of God or, or at least weakness by their God or maybe even cruelty because how could God use a foreign power far worse than us to serve as his discipline? It's actually God displaying his sovereign rule and how his mighty power wills to save humanity, not just Judah, not just America, but the whole world. And we see even how his mighty power is so different. And you've got to get this. It is so different than what we would think of power. It's just like now. You know, most of the grumbling and complaining that people do, whether they're pagan or Christian, most of the time it's just about now and how things aren't going away now and we're not on the winning side now and how my life is affected now. Which if you think about it, is probably why so much of the second half of the book of, the, the book of Daniel has to deal with the things of the future. Because you have a people turned in upon themselves and they can't get past their now. And God needs to show them the end and say, come on now. Come on, look how fleeting and fragile this world is. And look how wicked men will be. And yet, I still will to save them. That's our God. 
So know this, every earthly kingdom, whether nations or our own little empires, they're going to come to nothing. But God's kingdom and God's rule, it's going to endure forever. Now, if your Bible is open by way of introduction, verse 24, after Daniel prays for mercy and an answer, God graciously gives him both. Verse 20 through 23, he thanks God by singing a psalm of truth about God, a wonderful worship song there, if you'll see. He then goes to Arioch, whom the king appointed to execute all the wise men of Babylon. Remember, because they couldn't tell the dream and explain it to the king, he issues this decree. Every wise man has to die, including Daniel and his friends. Daniel tells the king's representative, Arioch, stop, don't kill anyone. Rather, take me to the king. Arioch does that. Daniel says to the king, verse 25, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. That's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? It was more like Daniel found him. Anyway, Daniel approaches the king. And here we are at our first point. Daniel and the king have a conversation. And and first thing I want you to consider, we're under our first heading here, conversation. I want you to consider how God's grace given to Daniel worked itself out in humility. Right? Verse 26, the king says, can you help me? Daniel replies, verse 27, nobody can. And I can't. In other words, oh king, you can expect nothing from me as me. What I have, king, I was given, and therefore what I give to you, I myself received from the God of heaven. That is a picture of complete humility. There was another picture again in the New Testament just like this. John the Baptist, his ministry is being overshadowed in the minds of his followers by the ministry of Jesus. They kind of have a little powwow with John the Baptist. And John says this, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Total humility. A person can receive only what is given. That is perfect, humble, truthful theology. 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have, Paul says to the pride-filled Corinthian church? What do you have that you did not receive? It's a rhetorical question. Answer, nothing. Nothing. Deuteronomy 8, 7. You may say to yourself that it's because of me and my strength and my wisdom that I have what I have and do what I do. No, says God. No, says Daniel. Oh, king, you can expect nothing from me, but what I have been given, I give to you. Now, loved ones, There is some wonderful application that we need to take in our heart because maybe the common pagan or the common Christian is convinced, is convinced that if you just set us on the right line, point the right direction, then we will roll up our sleeves and we can do what needs to be done. And we can create this wonderful life for ourselves. And and then if we have that wonderful life, we're like, I did that. It was my planning It was my wisdom. It was my work ethic. It's all me. It's all me. I saved so much money a month for this many years, and just it was incredible. And then the Bible is open, and the Bible is read. You may say to yourself, loved ones, everything you and I have, which includes the quality and the quantity of what we have, you and I received from God. 
Therefore, we are stewards of what we are and what we have, and we are not owners. Massive difference. Stewards will give an account because ultimately it is not ours. Owners will not. We are stewards. God gave Daniel grace, and it worked itself out in humility. And also, God gave Daniel grace, and he revealed to Daniel the mystery. That's verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, right? And he knows the future. And, O king, this was your nighttime dream, and this is what it means. Takes us right to our second point, believe it or not. Interpretation. Daniel had two charges. Give the dream, explain the dream. Okay? Okay, so then Daniel makes known, that's his first charge, the dream to the king. And he says, basically, a huge statue of a man was placed in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. God did that. It had a head of gold, chest and arms of silver. Its middle and thighs were bronze and so on. You can, you can read the text. And after the dream, uh, in the dream, the statue is smashed by a stone. And the stone's not cut by human hands, verse 34. And then the statue becomes nothing, no trace of it at all. To quote Kansas, it's dust in the wind. However, the stone, it keeps growing, verse 35, into a huge mountain which fills the entire earth. Well done, Daniel. Does what he's told. It's perfect. Charge number one, okay, tell the dream, done. Okay, now, Daniel, charge number two, Explain the dream. And you'll notice in verse 36, when Daniel begins to, to interpret the dream, Daniel does not use the first person singular I, but rather he uses the first person plural we. We will interpret it to the king. Now, it's just Daniel standing in front of the king. But Daniel is just so careful no one would have been hard on him if he said, I will interpret the dream. And because we know him so far, he's well-mannered, he's kind, he's respectful to authority, he follows the line. Daniel's a good boy. So an I would have been fine, but he uses a we. Is it a we for Daniel and God? Or is it a we for Daniel and his three friends? Or is it a we for Daniel and his three friends and God? It really doesn't matter. The point is, he uses a we and not an I. See, we, we, not an I, we will interpret it to the king. And what a great beginning it is for the king. Do you see this? Verse 37, you are the king of kings. I mean, if Nebuchadnezzar, I can imagine in my mind, says, hello, Daniel, I knew there was something special about you. You just sit here. You keep telling me these nice things, right? But there's always a but somewhere, verse 37b. Daniel finishes, the God of heaven, he is the one who has given you everything you have. In other words, in the final analysis, O king, all that you know of position, of power, of influence, of control, of decree, and your greatness, you did not do this on your own. You were actually given all this by the God of heaven. And you see that word given there? When you look at it, remember, this is not Hebrew here. This is Aramaic. And the Aramaic word is essentially, you were graced. 
The God of heaven graced you, O king. Verse 37. Dominion, power, might, glory, ruling over humanity, animals, birds. You are the head of all things on this earth. True. You're the head of, the, you're the head of gold. True. But God is the head of you, O king. And what you have, he gave. Your, your position and your possessions, it was God's grace which gave them to you. Now again, loved ones, what is true for Nebuchadnezzar is equally true for us. Now you remember I told you that Daniel is a picture of Christ and Nebuchadnezzar is a picture of you and I. It's pointing to our humanity. Therefore, we say this again, whatever we have, our title we have, our influence, our ability, our wealth, and whatever measure, God has given this God has granted this, which is why the Christian should live under the 10th commandment. Do not covet, right? You see someone with a better life, just don't covet that. You see someone with more stuff, more beauty, more intelligence, uh, more crowds, whatever. No, do not covet that. Why? Because there's a good God in heaven and he knows what he's doing. And he has decreed these things in quality and in quantity. And be happy. Be thankful. You know, when I was a little kid, he used to always get sore throats. He's getting them like every other week. And when I would get sore throats, I would tell God. I would say, God, you know, if I could just drink water and not have my throat hurt, I promise you I'll never sin again for the rest of my life. Just, just water. I'm not talking about Coke or chocolate milk or, or any of that stuff. Just, just water. You see, sometimes when life gets bad, what we have seems like an awful lot. Who we have seems like a great pleasure. And, and where we're going, just fine. Stewards, not masters. Our account to God will be on that last day. Our account will be what we have done for God with what we have been given by God. And loved ones, in that whole scene, our amount of our little consequence. In fact, in the time that we live in, the more you have, the more dangerous it could be. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus. Because one might think, okay, oh, great. I have more influence. I have more affluence. I have more money. Perfect. More me time. Terrific. I can go to even more places and do even more things. But of course, we will give an account to God for such behavior and will leave the judgment to him. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar, all that you enjoy of position, of influence, of power and glory, it's been given to you by the God of heaven. You are the world ruler, O king, true, but the God of heaven rules the world. And can you imagine the shock this must have been to Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, just think, all those battles that he fought in, led the charge, all those meetings he would have, and all those decisions, and his empire is awesome. I mean, he is just killing it. There's none its equal. 
And he must have had those moments where like, man, I can do no wrong. And I've got the great battle plan and my decision-making capability is on it. I'm in the prime of my life. And then he hears that God gave him everything. Everything. Now, at this moment, the exiles reading this must have had their aha moment. Maybe you're having one too. They might have been thinking before in their losses and in their crosses, evil has triumphed over good. There must be something going on with me. Their gods are stronger than our God. After all, look at us. However, now they can understand that the God who promised them in covenant to love them always has put them in that position and put this king in his Daniel continues, verse 38b, you are the head of gold. Then I almost feel sorry for him. Look, verse 39, after you, right? In other words, king after you die. (laughs) Or your lineage, it's not going to last very long. You had your time, but the God who changes times and changes seasons, sets up kings and puts them down, he's going to unseat you. And he's actually going to unseat your line. Now, as you see there, there are Four kingdoms represented. And they come one after the other. And those kingdoms have traditionally been understood, and I would add rightly so, uh, as the Babylonian kingdom, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And to be honest with you, I'm not going to say too much more about this because if I did, then we would be entering in the realm of speculation. Okay, why do I say speculation? I want you to think with me. One of the fundamental rules of interpretation of the Holy Scriptures is Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, so you have these three other kingdoms, and they're given without any interpretation anywhere in your Bible. So God decided not to tell us what kingdoms these other body parts are tied to. Now, if you're thinking and We'll say if you're a student of prophecy, you know and I know that there's a whole lot of books that are prepared to tell us a lot more than what the Bible is prepared to tell us. And you better be careful because that at its best is speculation no matter what anyone says, no matter how terrific the person is that's saying it. Okay, this is what we're told. We are told that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Beyond that, everything we could say about, about the statue would be without interpretation of those kingdoms which would lead us into the realm of speculation, which is usually not very helpful. Now, again, Scripture interprets Scripture. That's fundamental. So when we say this body part means this nation and that body part means that nation, unless the Bible tells it so, then it's speculation. We'll get later on and there'll be an eagle in one of the images and a bear, and everybody's like, bear has to be Russia. The eagle has to be America. Why? Tell me why. Because the Bible doesn't give us that kind of clarity. So you ask yourself, okay, what is the main and plain meaning Daniel and God is is giving here? And if you ask yourself that question, part of the answer is the other three kingdoms to know who they are, the text does not depend on that. The interpretation does not depend on that. We are given the head, got it. In a moment, we'll be given the rock, got it. But beyond that, speculation. And you know, that hasn't stopped men from preaching all kinds of sermons and writing all kinds of books about, you know, the arm means this and the toe means that and iron means that, which the passage of time has refuted or negated. Go pick up a book of prophecy in the 70s 
most of them. Find out how way off they were. Speculation. I mean, when I was a child, I was a child of the late 70s, early 80s. I remember listening to these kinds of sermons, you know, and the guy would tell me about Rome and, and all kinds of stuff, and I would get juiced up as a kid. You know, ten nations and seven heads, and this means this, and that toe means that, and you put them together, you divide them by three, hold your answer up to the mirror, inverted, and you're going to find out the name of the Antichrist and the year of his coming. Just kidding, but you get the point. It's very, very silly. It's not helpful. Even as a kid, I didn't like it. What is the main and plain thing here being communicated by Daniel and God in the dream to Nebuchadnezzar? You take a step back from the text. What is the main and plain point? God sets up times. God sets up seasons and kings and kingdoms. These kingdoms come and go as God decrees. He will set up a kingdom which will crush, verse 44, you see this there, all other kingdoms. And his kingdom will never end and his kingdom will never be passed on to someone else. And again, this is what those exiles need to know and this is what we exiles need to know. Therefore, let's put it in context. Presidents come in and they will go out. God will put them in and God will take them out. Verse 44, but... God's kingdom is eternal and universal. And so what we find in Daniel's interpretation is that all of human history is under the control of God for the glory of God and the purposes of God, which is in part, don't forget this, because God wants to save the world. So, so from the highest authoritative offices to the common lives most of us here live, God is sovereignly working his purposes out in both. Now listen carefully. This is not fatalism, nor is there any hint of neglecting our duties as children of God because, you know, people will go, oh, well, whatever's meant to happen will happen. The sovereignty of God does not give us that liberty. In fact, that line of thinking is a byproduct of a wicked heart and a feeble mind. The dream God gave the king was conveying the truth that God was working his purposes out in history and God will eventually replace all these kingdoms. So do your duty. Do your duty. Okay. So in the fullness of time, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. They are cut short by Greece and Alexander the Great. He comes, he goes because God wills it. And then comes the Roman Empire and they rule the world. Okay, so what do we know? Well, this is what we know. We know that while Rome ruled the world, we know that in a nowhere place, a place of little significance, there was a young girl. Now think, Rome's doing their thing. You know, they're, they're just having their way with the world. But then there's this little girl. And while the powerful men were, were, were doing their powerful things and, and making their powerful decisions, this little girl, a girl of no consequence, she receives an angelic visitation. And this little girl is told by the angel that she will give birth to a son. Her only question is, how's this going to happen because I'm a virgin? The angel says, God's power will overshadow you and it's going to take care of everything. And this little girl named Mary, Mary, you are to give your son the name Jesus, and he'll be great. And then the angel says this, and his kingdom 
will never, ever end. Now, listen carefully. That kind of humility, man as man would never plan as a means to conquer this world. A little girl in a nowhere place, a virgin birth, and that just starts the whole thing off. Therefore, Jesus is the stone that is fashioned out of the rock, not with human hands. He is the rock that struck the statue, verse 435, and fills the whole earth. The statue is demolished by Christ. The rock wasn't done by human hands. Christ's birth was a seed planted by the human Holy Spirit, not by a mere man. The rock, which had its origin in God, verse 45, cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold to pieces is Jesus. How do we know? Because Jesus himself said this. Luke 20, verse 18. Uh, I am the one who falls on this stone, speaking of himself, will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone, and we could add any nation, on whom it falls. And the kingdom of God since then has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger until verse 35, until verse 44. All the kingdoms of this world are crushed. Nothing left to conquer. And the kingdom of God then will endure forever. That takes us to our final point. First point was conversation. Second was interpretation. Daniel did his duty there. Application. Okay, let's try to make some application in the remaining time that we have. This is what we know, alien, right? Back then and right now. This is what we know. God is not interested in world domination as some people would understand it. He's not interested in world domination. He's not interested in political domination. He's interested in the world's salvation. That's his kingdom. That's why his sovereignty matters so much. So you see, listen carefully. That means that ISIS could win. I mean, just think, just like Babylon. Nobody wants that here, but they could win. Some other country in the course of time could defeat us. Again, nobody wants that, but it could happen. And it could happen in order to reveal to us as Christians in America where our ultimate security lies. Because our security does not lie in warfare. It does not lie in political arrangements. It does not lie in economic stability. It doesn't lie in elections. And surely it doesn't lie in our own ability to plan out that, you know, wonderful life. Our ultimate security lies in the fact of the promise which is conveyed in this pagan king's dream. And it's described by Daniel, explained by Daniel, because God was merciful to Daniel and gave him everything he needed to know 600 years before the birth of the stone. Not the rolling stones, but Jesus, the cornerstone, the cornerstone. And when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, at the Father's command, what does he say? Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. In other words, everything needed to happen has happened. And Jesus says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, what was Jesus saying? I'm the king. I am the king. And how was it that he could do what he did? Right? If if he's saying he's the king, he's saying he's the king, how could it be that he could do what he did? I mean, demonic powers 
fell to his feet when he walked this earth. Why did that happen? Again, listen to Jesus, Mark tw- Matthew 12, 28. If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, Jesus says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now listen carefully. The, pe- the people hear that, and this is what they did. Here we go. Kingdom, king, with that kind of power, we could overthrow Rome. We can reestablish our citadel. We'll make Israel great again. Sound familiar? We're going to be number one again, just like the good old days. And you know what? We're going to deal with it nationalistically and territorially, and we're going to use Jesus' superhero power to set us on our way. I mean, did you see what he just did? But what happens? I mean, you know the story. Everything comes to a crashing end. The king of kings is now nailed to a Roman cross. Apparently, Rome has won. The Jewish super elite, they won. But I say to you again, think, think, think. Jesus was never more powerful and in control than when he surrendered to death on the cross. And the king on the cross is greater than and will always be greater than the king, any king on his throne. So death couldn't hold Jesus. His body saw no decay. Jesus arose. Now think with me. Think with me, Jesus arose, that's power. But we, we, we are too often tempted to unite Jesus' concern for men and women and their salvation. And we try to take that power and then we try to say, okay, then Jesus is going to use that power to make the Christians always on the winning side. Right? Our homes will always be safe and sound. Nothing of trouble will ever come, and we will be able to keep things as they are. God's people thought that in Judah. I mean, we all understand this, but do we understand that God wills to save all people, and that God is an international God which seeks to save every person from every nation, tribe, and tongue? And God may use, to his glory, incredibly difficult circumstances to serve those purposes. Which is why Jesus always told his followers that you should know the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you know the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be like on the winning team, earthly speaking. When you know the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be my witness. You will be my witness. Acts 1 and 8. Across the street than around the world. And so this is what God's purposes in his kingdom. This is what God purposes in his kingdom to come. Listen carefully. First, in the person and work of Jesus. This is how God purposes his kingdom. First, in the purpose and work of Jesus. Second, in the growth of the gospel as it's proclaimed in the world and established in his church. Third, Acts 14, 22, we must go through many trials to enter the kingdom of heaven. And finally, finally, the visible, universal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the culmination of the kingdom that is here and the kingdom that is coming and the kingdom which will come. So that now... It's not then, right? The kingdom hasn't come to that extent. It's not concluded, if you would. 
but it's here. So even while we see the drama of world history unfold before our eyes, even personal history, I mean, we watch history in a way that previous generations can't even dream about, frankly. And the world is a very hot-blooded, explosive place right now. Okay, so how is the Christian supposed to live in the context? Whether they're a Christian in Itasca County or a Christian in Uzbekistan or a Jewish convert or Arab convert, how are we supposed to live? Well, we live in the light of this truth. Verse 44, the God of heaven has his kingdom. It's here. It's now. It's not territorial. It's not political. But it is universal and it is eternal And in its fullness, every earthly kingdom will come to an end because God's kingdom and the person of his son will see to it. Now, let me just ask this question, then we'll be done. Do you rightly know Jesus this way? Jesus is not a political figure. Jesus is not ultimately a conservative Jesus is not the one who can make your family better and marriage better. And that's all he really cares about, to make your life better. That's not the Jesus of the Bible, ultimately. The Jesus of the Bible, as he's presented here and throughout the scriptures, is the one who died for sin and offers himself to you and promises you as you repent and believe on him that no matter what happens in this short, short life, there's a kingdom coming. And it's going to be swell. And it's going to be forever and ever. So what we have here now, ultimately, is a little dot. A little dot in light of eternity. Do you find comfort in that? Do you? I find great comfort in that. Great comfort in that. Thanks for your attention. I'll be around if you have any questions. Let's bow and pray. Our gracious God and eternal Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now may the God of all grace May the God of love, the God of peace, the God of hope, the God of fire, the God of truth, may you have your mercy on your people this morning. And as we leave here, may our minds be constrained by eternal truth. And let the person of Jesus Christ be our greatest security and our greatest hope. To the praise of your glory, we ask these things. Amen.